Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. I want to extend a warm welcome to those of us that are here in person today, and a big thank you to our guest, Alex Pollock, for being with us at Heritage as well. Uh, for those of us who aren't here, you can watch this live if you're watching now. We'll also have this on the Heritage.org website uh, following the event this evening. Alex is a distinguished senior fellow at the R Street Institute here in Washington, D.C. He focuses on financial policy issues, including financial cycles, housing finance, banking systems, government-sponsored enterprises such as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, retirement finance, corporate governance, and financial crises. He also focuses on uncertainty and risks in the marketplace, which is what he'll be discussing with us today. He has deep experience as a banker, at one point serving as CEO of the Federal Home Loan Bank in Chicago. For those of you not familiar with it, uh, that's a, a collection of 11 banks with uh, more than $1 trillion in assets. And he's currently director at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the leading and most diverse derivatives marketplace. So, of course, you're a widely published author, um, but Alex also has a lifelong pursuit of philosophy. He was a philosophy student and undergrad. And if you read his writings, you'll see a lot of that infused throughout uh, the book that he'll be discussing, Finance and Philosophy, is available on Amazon Prime. I read it over the weekend. I found it very entertaining, but also very informative. And as you'll hear today, mistakes regarding risk are part of human nature and is magnified when it comes to economics and the financial marketplace. Join me today in welcoming Alex Ball. Thanks very much for coming to talk about uh, the, uh, the book in a little bit. Thank you, Joel. Thanks to the Heritage Foundation for hosting it. Thanks for coming, ladies and gentlemen. I had a lot of fun writing this book. And what it does is explore what I think is the truly fascinating nature of financial reality, which is different from other kinds of reality, let's say financial and economic reality. It's different in its history, its present, and its future. This is a reality which is a human creation, but is not controlled by human intentions. A reality which is intertwined with politics at all times, making it even less predictable, reality which is inter, uh, intertwined at, in every way uh, with ideas, with strategies, with expectations, with human nature. It's a reality which induces some of the very smartest people to make the very biggest and seen in retrospect dumbest mistakes. It's reality, which is interactive, recursive, complex, and reflex and reflexive because of the uh, of the embedding of ideas and strategies and anticipations in itself, which keeps changing it in unanticipated ways, even though it's constantly anticipating anticipations. We all know, uh, as a good example, the stock market is always looking forward, and the stock market is always changing its mind about what the future might be. And we know that financial and economic futures are except exceptionally uh, difficult 
to uh, predict with consistent success. A great example is that that you may know in January 2008, Ben Bernanke, an unquestionably brilliant and very knowledgeable man, backed by all the resources of the greatest central bank in the world, of which he was then chairman, announced that the Federal Reserve is not currently forecasting a recession, a really terrible forecast indeed, since as we now know, a recession had already started before he made the forecast that there wouldn't be one, a great example of how just being smart and well-informed doesn't help you forecast successfully. A month before, Janet Yellen, another highly intelligent and knowledgeable central banker, and of course Bernanke's successor, had made another equally terrible, utterly mistaken forecast about the coming year. And in general, as we all know, the record of economic and financial forecasting is poor, uh, which reminds us of an old joke you may know, which is what's the difference between an economist and an engineer? Do we have any economists here? Any engineers? Uh, the difference is if an economist is right once, it makes his career. If an engineer is wrong once, it ends his career. So we know that economics is not engineering, for sure. Now, this joke may remind us of the self-confident macroeconomists of the early 1960s, whom I remember, who announced that they were going to, as they said, fine-tune the economy. And uh, they would thereby do away with economic and financial cycles. And they actually, actually meant it. They actually thought that they could do it. And they were not dumb. They were brilliant. Uh, since then, we've had not just cycles, but financial crises since the 1960s. We've had crises in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, and 2010s. Uh, and next, uh, the next is coming. The confident pronouncements of the 1960s now look just silly. Uh, as do the claims of central bankers in the early 2000s that they had created what they called the Great Moderation, when ha what they had created was the Great Leveraging instead. Now, if we look uh, back in history, we find that financial and banking crises are not rare and exceptional events. They're quite usual and common events. Now, the book details the banking crises, for example, of the 100 years of the 20th century. In this 100 years, a banking crisis started somewhere in 54 of the 100 years in some country or other. Nor did we do better with time, because at the last two decades, the 1980s and the 1990s, banking crises started in some country or countries in 10 of the 10 years in each of those decades, so we don't seem to learn uh, with time. And the point the book is making is that these problems are not caused by a lack of intelligence. They're not caused by a lack of effort or dominant dishonesty and fraud or not having enough computers or not having lots of data. It isn't being stupid that makes correctly forecasting the financial future so hard. <laughs> Excuse me. It's the nature of the financial reality itself. In other words, the problem is not about the knowing mind, but about the odd thing that it's trying to know. If that sounds philosophical, that just justifies my title of all these interesting philosophical aspects of finance. Uh, the financial and economic future is, we know, unknown, but more importantly, uh, the book argues, it is unknowable. That is, it's fundamentally and irredeemably uncertain, not merely risky. Well, well, why should that be the case? The book asks, why is the financial future like this? Why are we always surprised, to quote 
uh, the, sub, the subtitle. That is the question, and it's the first question that the book takes up, pointing out that, of course, not all aspects of the future are unknown or unknowable. Some of them are completely known. For example, we can precisely and correctly forecast the paths of the planets thousands or millions of years in advance. But how far in advance can we correctly forecast the behavior of financial markets? Certainly not a year, not even a few months, maybe not even a week or a day. My a favorite story here is that, that Isaac Newton, a towering genius and maybe this, the most brilliant mind in all of history, at least one of them, in the financial bubble of his own day, which was the South Sea bubble of 1720, lost a lot of money. He got in early, sold out for a big profit, felt bad that he was missing out on the continuing boom, bought back in at the top, and lost a fortune. Afterwards, in disgust, Newton said, I can calculate the motions of the heavenly bodies but not the madness of the people. And that's precisely it. Financial reality is full of paradoxes, philosophically interesting paradoxes. Ideas about the financial future and expectations about it become part of the future itself uh, and may be self-falsifying. For example, believing financial things are impossible often makes them possible or even likely. Believing, for example, that house prices can't go down ultimately makes them go down. Believing they can't go down very much makes them go down a lot. Believing financial things are safe makes them dangerous. And the more you think something is a mere tail risk, the more probable it becomes until just before the crisis, it becomes a virtually 100% probability. Or in the famous formulation of my friend Hyman Minsky, stability creates instability. Or the great line of John Maynard Keynes, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. And uh, Keynes knew that from personal experience of uh, nearly going broke a couple of times. So thinking of the unending interactions subject to fundamental uncertainty leads to a really important political conclusion, and it is this. Everyone is part of the uncertain interactions which make up an economy and a financial market. No one, no one is above and outside the interactions looking down the celestial perspective. Regulators and central bankers in particular are not above the arena of financial interactions, sitting in the emperor's box, so to say, to give thumbs up or thumbs down. There is no emperor's box. Everybody, including all the regulators and the central bankers, are in the arena. There is no special knowledge of the financial future given to central bankers or regulators, or let alone politicians, or to anybody else. There are no philosopher kings, and no philosopher kings are possible. Uh, the brilliant, uh, witty, and extremely arrogant Keynes, whom I quoted a second ago, uh, was a truly marvelous writer. In a 1930 essay, he had this to say, economics should be a matter for specialists Note Keynes, you may know this wonderful passage, like dentistry. If economists could manage to get themselves thought of as humble, competent people on a par with dentists, that would be splendid. Now, the irony and condescension of the intellectual elitist Keynes, who, while superlatively competent, was certainly not humble, is apparent. But with the passage of time since 1930, uh, the irony has deliciously reversed itself. For modern dentistry is a wonder of modern times. It's based on real science. 
It has made huge advances in scientific knowledge, applied technology, and practice to the great benefit of all mankind. Modern dentistry is something to be very grateful for. And dentistry is obviously far ahead of economics in these respects. Uh, its progress since 1930 is incomparably greater. And economics will never be able to rise to the scientific level of dentistry. There's a chapter in the book called Why Economics is Not a Science and It Can't Be a Science. Moreover, central banking will never be able to rise to the scientific level of dentistry. Now, in my opinion, this lack of knowledge, this inability of rising to the level of dentistry, doesn't make finance and economics less interesting, but more interesting to think about. And I hope this makes the book a more interesting for you. Uh, before I switch gears here, I'll end up with a little joke. You may know it. It's a very old, but it has a wonderful point. Uh, this is another difference joke. What's the difference between banking and politics? The answer is banking is borrowing money from the public and lending it to your friends. Politics is taking money from the public and giving it to your friends. So, so what is banking when directed by politicians? It's borrowing money from the public and lending it to the politicians' friends. And that's why government banks always are a failure. Now, the book also takes up what I call the wonderful trend and the troublesome cycles. The wonderful, very long-term trend is that of greater and greater economic and living standards for ordinary people, people like you and like me. This trend is created by the enterprising economy, which is the name I prefer, or what is also called competitive markets or free markets or capitalism. It's an amazing trend, and we all, especially uh, those of us here, enjoy this trend. It's a trend of about 200 years, which has lifted the material standard of living and our quality of life to levels of comfort, levels of comfort, and a lack of toil. Look at, we get to sit around and think about uncertainty and finance instead of plowing the field. And a lack of toil unimaginable in past ages. This trend has transformed the world. What made it possible? It was made possible by the most important event in world history, and that is the creation of science based on mathematics by the intellectual giants of the 17th century, symbolized above all by Isaac Newton aforementioned. Just think about the accumulation of knowledge which led to technical invention and then commercial innovation and then entrepreneurship to which risk-taking and uncertainty is essential. We can't separate risk-taking and uncertainty from the great economic growth trend that's astonishing over these, uh, over these centuries. So thanks to the trend, we are now in standard of living eight times, eight times better off than were Americans in my grandfather's youth in 1900. That is to say, measured by per capita gross domestic product, per capita, of course, is all that matters in this idea. Per capita GDP is eight times what it was in 1900. That's really amazing to think about, and I don't think ordinarily we stop to appreciate how radical and fundamental the change in the condition of ordinary people has been. Now, since 1900, the average per capita annual growth rate in GDP is 1.9%. This would be amazing, 2%. So if you can get 2%, and it's real, I'm sorry, inflation adjusted real, 2%. 2% per year over 100 
in 18 years get you eight times uh, better off. I think the philosophical importance of this transformation in the human condition, which is ongoing, cannot be overstated. And uh, human life as it is and as it's come to be cannot be understood uh, without it. You'll, you'll, of course, know that Thomas Hobbes famously described the human condition and the state of nature as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. I doubt that it was ever solitary, but it was certainly poor, nasty, brutish, and short. For most people, uh, in almost all times, it was like that. And for us, relatively speaking, it's rich, comfortable, educated, and long, and especially marked by a lack of toil. Now, that's the magic of the 2% per capita real growth rate in, in the progress. But here's a question. Is it possible to have this wonderful trend without the cycles, without the booms and the busts? Can it be that the long-term trend of economic growth, making ordinary people better and better off, can happen without ups and downs, booms and busts, panics, crises, cycles. The uh, people at the time of the founding of the Federal Reserve thought the answer was yes. The controller of the currency wrote in 1914, now that we have the Federal Reserve, uh, financial crises and panics have become impossible. That was one of those bad forecasts that we talked about before. But the book speculates that the answer is you can't have the trend without the cycles. They go together. Um, you might want to ponder whether that is right, but the argument is this. The growth trend depends upon invention, innovation, and entrepreneurial risk-taking, which creates uncertainty and unknowable outcomes. And uncertainty and unknowable outcomes create cycles. So the argument is that uncertainty is at the heart. Uncertainty is at the heart both of growth and per capita well-being and of cycles. Uh, and in an enterprising economy, we are never at equilibrium. We're always going someplace else, and we're not sure just where that someplace else is. As Joseph Schumpeter put it, the capitalist process progressively raises the standard of life of the masses. It does this through a series of vicissitudes. All vicissitudes are the cycles. Uh, 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 Schumpeter also said, Economic progress means turmoil. So it seems to me, as I said, that we can't have the trend without the turmoil. That's a really fundamental question. I invite you to think some more about uh, with me. Now, the book also takes up the question of faith versus skepticism. In particular, it discusses how much faith can you put in governments? And how much faith should you put in governments? Uh, in this context, the book considers the history of sovereign debt, which is a checkered history indeed, it turns out. There have been about 250 defaults on sovereign debt in the last two centuries. And as one financial historian said, the history of government loans is really a history of government defaults. But surely that doesn't include default by the United States ever, does it? Well, it does. And the book will take you through the overt default by the United States on its gold bonds in 1933. The ensuing very interesting legal disputes got to the Supreme Court which upheld the government five to four, the court agreeing that the government had defaulted, but finding that if you are a sovereign government, you could default if you want to. 
is a matter of power, not a matter of right. And we learn in this wonderful story I'm about to uh, tell you, which is quoted in the book in the chapter on national governments and debt, what being a sovereign really means. In ancient times, Dionysus, the tyrant of Syracuse, we read, borrowed from his subjects. But when it came time to repay, he couldn't. So he issued a, dec a decree to the effect that all the silver coins in circulation had to be turned into the government. Those failing to do so were punishable by death. After he had obtained all the coins, he caused them to be re-minted re by stamping each one drachma coin with the inscription, two drachmas. With these two drachma coins, he then paid off his debt to his subjects. Very efficient. One may rightly claim for the tyrant of Syracuse, says the author, who is Max Winkler, the title, the father of currency devaluation. I say we could call him the father of modern central banking. Now, central banks are part of the story, too. They're part of governments. Uh, and the book takes up the topic uh, of central banking in a chapter called The Most Dangerous Financial Institution in the World. Tonight, I will only say that that most dangerous financial institution in the world, uh, as you may not be surprised to hear, is the Federal Reserve. The Fed gets its own chapter and certainly warrants it, and certainly warrants its title. Now, the book also reflects on some other questions which seem very intriguing to me. What is money? What is a price? Economics is all about prices and finance, but what is a price? Price has no objective existence. Uh, how much can the price of something, especially the price of a financial asset, change? How much can a price change? The answer to that question is more than you think, especially it can go down a lot more than you think. Uh, what is risk? What is uncertainty? And of course, how is it that so often even the most capable, best informed, and powerful people are nonetheless surprised by what happens financially? Uh, in this context, I like to quote an old boss of mine, Edward Bottom. I call this Bottom's Principle. And Bottom's Principle is, it's easier to be brilliant than right. And there are plenty of very brilliant people who fail to be right uh, in, in the crisis. Um, I mentioned earlier, uh, a life relative to the famous line of Thomas Hobbes is now long rather than short. And of course, this creates giant financial problems of which we're only at the beginning, historically speaking. And the book considers these in a chapter called Finance and the Life Cycle. Uh, this chapter also gives me a chance to quote a favorite poem of mine in the book, little known and very dark and sober lines by Robert Frost on the financial aspect of growing old. If this intrigues you, you'll find the poem in, cha in chapter 14. The book also takes up a chapter, uh, also takes up in the chapter of virtue and finance. Are there specific financial virtues? And how should we think about them? And suggests that the, the virtues particularly appropriate to finance are loyalty, prudence, integrity, and temperance. And I hope we'll all strive for these virtues. And finally, at the very end of the book, uh, is what I call a compendium of aphorisms. These are all my favorite sayings about financial reality, this odd, this odd kind of reality. Of course, I had to put Pollock's law of finance first, uh, but there are many others, a few, several pages of them, which I hope, if you get a chance to look at them, will strike you as both true and funny. Uh, and with that, thanks again for the chance to share these thoughts with you. Uh, and I'm certainly happy to take any questions about the book or the, or the ideas that it treats.
Thanks. Yeah, we have uh, time for several questions. I thought maybe uh, I would kick it off with, with one that jumped out at me when I was reading the book uh, the other day. Um, you were talking uh, a bit about the, the risk from the last financial crisis and the bailouts. And despite the fact that the Treasury ended up with the profit with some of the bank bailouts, at least on paper, you talked about the cost to savers across the country, and you estimated that at $2 trillion. I was wondering if you could go uh, talk a bit about how you got to that figure and why uh, savers were impacted to such a large extent. Thanks. That's a, that's a very uh, apt point. Uh, I'll, by way of setting the context, I will tell you what Pollock's Law of Finance is. These loans which cannot be paid will not be paid. And once the loans can't be paid, the losses have already happened. The losses are certain. And then what's, what's it all about after that? It's all about dividing up the losses. Who gets them? It's like a giant bankruptcy proceeding. Of course, it involves bankruptcy proceedings also. Now, one of the ways that you can get some people to take the losses if you're the central bank, uh, is to expropriate savers. And that's exactly what central, the central bank of this country, the Federal Reserve and other countries, did. You expropriate savers by forcing uh, interest rates below the rate of inflation and giving them negative real returns on their savings. And why do you do this? You do this to, to, uh, for, for three reasons. You want to have the banks recover and other financial intermediaries who are highly leveraged. And for, for them, it's really useful to have really cheap financing. So you create this cheap financing for the highly leveraged financial intermediaries to recover. It's one way you help pay for the crisis. Uh, you want to cause asset prices to go up because that makes people feel better, like house prices and stock prices. Uh, and you want to finance the government deficit cheaply. So the crisis has caused deficits, and uh, you want to cause borrowers in general to receive transfers from savers. Borrowers include highly leveraged speculative entities. The biggest borrower of all is the government, so the biggest beneficiary of this transfer from savers is the government itself. What we did in this calculation was take the, the total of individual savings, of savings accounts, of money market interest owned, of money market instruments owned by individuals, added, added them up. It's several trillion dollars. Then we calculated the long-term average, the 50-year average real return on such savings. And then we compared it to the negative real return from 2008 to now, multiplied that difference by the amount of savings over the period, and the answer is a two tr over $2 trillion transfer from savers to borrowers, uh, with the biggest borrower being you-know-who, you as just discussed. It's a really, uh, let me say one other thing. It's, uh, it's one of the ways to pay for the crisis is to make savers pick up a bunch of the tab after the fact. Uh, it's insidious, and it's political. It's a purely political action. Um, we defined politics before as taking money from the, public, from the public and giving it to your friends. Well, taking money from the savers and giving it to borrowers is a purely political action taken by unelected officers, namely the officers of the central bank. David Burton, the Heritage Foundation. Uh, I guess I, I have um, a question or maybe a comment that I'd be interested in your reaction to. I mean, I agree with the vast majority of, of what you've said. And That's good. I, I look forward to reading your book, which arrived from Amazon last night. But the one thing that, that you said that I, I think I'd like to quarrel with a little bit is you talked about, uh, in effect, the, the downturns or business cycles are, are necessary. 
but and and you you cited an example of that of you know in effect uh, entrepreneurs entrepreneurial failure and Schumpeter's creative destruction and that and that sort of thing, but there's no particular reason to believe that has to happen systematically throughout the economy at one time, and you know some entrepreneurs are going to fail, others are going to succeed, and. Uh, the question we have to ask is why does it suddenly happen all of a sudden throughout the economy? Yeah. And it seems to me that the most likely explanation for that is monetary policy and the Federal Reserve manipulating the, the, the interest rates and money supply and making mistakes. And I, I mean, so how, how can you say that it's really entrepreneurship or creative destruction or, or what have you? In, in in the sense that, that that happens sort of randomly over time and there's no reason to believe that it's going to happen systematically. That's a great question, uh, David. And if we say the, uh, which I think is quite true, and it's also a good Frank Knight, uh, risk uncertainty and profit, that the, the return for those entrepreneurs who do make money is a return to uncertainty, not to risk, but to uncertainty and the innovation and uncertainty uh, uh, cause cycles. You're absolutely right. There's something else that happens. There's a leveraging up of the expectations of the current set of uh, innovations or popular. It doesn't have to be an innovation uh, in, in product. It could be an innovation in financial type like, say, uh, structured mortgage-backed securities and the theory that you can successfully tranche uh, financial assets into multiple-class securities and know what, and know what you're doing. Uh, and the, the uncertainty is levered up and the uh, prices and the credit get into a mutually reinforcing cycle where the higher the prices go, the more confident the investors and lenders become. And the more confident uh, they become, the higher the prices go until everything goes into reverse. And I completely agree that feeding into that as well is the actions of the central bank in suppressing interest rates and real interest rates, often consciously intending an asset price boom. Uh, and, the, and the financial leveraging of the high prices based on expectations which are highly uncertain because of the underlying uh, uh, innovation and creativity uh, reach a point uh, where they're no longer sustainable. What is that point, by the way? The point is when the lenders are no longer willing to lend. That's what brings the game to an impression as long as somebody will lend you more money, you've got the money and you can spend it. You can pay your old, you can pay the interest on your old debts with the new loans. Uh, that's a Ponzi scheme. Bubbles always turn into Ponzi schemes in the end, where the new credit is merely paying for the old credit. But when finally, when when the lenders, because they themselves either are broke or have become too fear to becoming broke. Stop lending, that brings the whole game to an end. Everything uh, goes into reverse, and the uncertainty, which was always there, really, but maybe not appreciated, uh, and, uh, and was implicit, becomes explicit, and manifested, and down we go. And that brings us to uh, one other of the aphorisms you'll find at the end of the book, which I a saying, a great saying, I learned from an old banker a long time ago, which is risk is the price you never thought you'd have to pay. What that means is that it's, when it's bad, it's worse than you thought, and you never thought it would be this bad. Why not? Why didn't you think it would be that bad? Because it's fundamentally uncertain. Anyway, this is really deep stuff, and I, I agree with you. This is a key point to try to, try to think through and understand. I'll ask a second question, seeing none out there. Uh, coming from a finance background, I thought that your discussion on accounting standards uh, was quite fascinating. Uh, you talked a bit about how 
the, uh, the numbers as reported according to GAAP, how you're supposed to report them for, uh, for SEC purposes, often uh, don't reflect a complete picture of reality, and that's not necessarily because of fraud. Other factors are involved. So could you, uh, could you explore that, uh, that a bit? Accounting can't reflect a complete uh, reality because no, no representation can, re can reflect a complete reality. All representations are partial uh, views of reality from different points of view with different interests. I think I tell the story in the book of one of my brothers uh, who was first in the country on the CPA exam his year, uh, having been an English literature major before that. And when asked how he managed to get this wonderful score on the CPA exam, he said his secret was not to look for any logic, just memorize the rules. <laughs> and I think that's a lot of where accounting has come from. Can I tell the statue story? Please. <laughs> so in this respect and in the book is my story of, of statues. I pose you the question, thinking of accounting as a, as a partial representation or any representation as partial, what is the true view of a statue? And I ask you to imagine you're in Washington, D.C., which is full of equestrian statues of Civil War generals from the, from the winning side, because if you were on the losing side, you, of course, don't get a statue in, in Washington. Uh, and ask yourself, what's the true, what's the true, the true view of the statue, and there is no the true view. There's a view from the front, there's a view from the side, a view from the top, and as I point out in the book, there's also a view from directly behind, which features the noble steed's derriere. It's also one of the true views, and it, and it may also, I suggest, remind you of some people you know. Well, we're on the topic of the, the Federal Reserve. Um, uh, we hear a lot about the 2% the mandate, and it's become so much part of our modern economics vocabulary. It seems as if it's always been there. Prices should inflate by 2% per year. We should not stray far from that. Uh, can you explain where that concept came from, and is that, uh, is that a rule that you believe the, the Reserve should be adhering to? I think, personally, I think it's a very bad rule and silly, 2% forever. The, um, the Federal Reserve Act in its 1977 amendments, which was called the Federal Reserve Reform Act, uh, instructed the Federal Reserve, among other things, to pursue stable, stable prices. Uh, the Fed has since changed stable prices to the term price stability, and wishes you to believe that price stability means perpetual inflation uh, at the rate of 2% a year. It seems to me that's an obvious absurdity. Uh, no one can know that 2% inflation is good, especially forever, uh, and certainly the Fed can't know it. I happen, I, I, as I mentioned before, I'm going to be speaking tomorrow at the Hudson Institute uh, in a book event uh, on a, a book by... Brendan Brown called The Case Against the 2% Inflation, uh, which might interest some of you, which is a long and complex and, uh, in my view, very convincing argument about the, uh, the depth of the, of the mistake of the 2% theory. Where the 2% theory came from is New Zealand in 1989. New Zealand had very high inflation, and they wanted to get it down. So they wanted a target for what to get inflation. So they could say, we're going to take inflation down from 5% or more. And so they said, well, let's say 2. Let's say we'll get it down to 2 to get it down. And they actually then formally set a range of 0 to 2. But since we've forgotten about the 0. But the idea was getting it down, not getting it, it up. Uh, this is the latest in a series of... of uh, of fashions in central bank ideas. I suggest that one of the most important, well, ideas in the long run are the most important thing there is. That's why heritage exists and our street. It's, it is ideas, as Keynes wrote, 
which are dangerous for good or evil. Uh, and he's right, and that's and we're right about that. Uh, but but there's a certain kind of idea which is really dangerous, and it's the ideas which become the current fashion of central bankers. And the two percent idea is the current central banking fashion. It's only the latest in a whole series of central banking ideas, uh, going back to the gold standard, which collapsed, which was collapsed by the First World War in 1914, uh, and and all and these various attempts. And they maybe last 20 years or so. Uh, at least one way, the way that, that, that my friend Brendan Brown suggests we think about this is this is the current fashion. He believes uh, it will also fail like the others. Uh, we'll see, but I, I think uh, perpetual inflation at 2% a year, which means that in a lifetime, prices will quintuple. The lifetime be 80 or 82 years. Uh, can hardly be described as price stability. That's a wonderful Orwellian example of new speak on the part of our central bankers. I don't know where we left off. I don't want to monopolize the question, but I have one other one for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and sticking to the, the Federal Reserve issue, uh, President Trump has made it very clear um, that he's unhappy with the current uh, trajectory with higher interest rates under the new Federal Reserve chairman. Um, you talk uh, quite a bit in your book about the idea of philosopher kings running the central banking system, um, but then also the danger of politicians choosing uh, short-term gains, such as artificially low interest rates or monetization of the debt, uh, that would actually impact us long-term. How, uh, how can we pursue a path that would strike a balance between transparency and accountability on one hand and allowing politicians free reign over a monetary supply on the other. The thing that central banks need to be independent of is the executive, uh, not the legislature, in my opinion. Uh, because the executive always wants to finance, wants to spend money and finance it. Um, there's a really interesting uh, debate going on in India right now between the government of India and the central bank of India about whether the, whether the executive should be able to tell the central bank what to do, and the central bank is resisting, and, and it's this classic uh, debate being, being played out. Um, if you believe, as I believe, that every aspect of any of our government, of our constitutional government, has to be subject to checks and balances. That means the Federal Reserve has to be subject to checks and balances too. And to whom should the Fed be accountable? Um, president Trump is by no means the only president who's wanted to use the Federal Reserve to do what he wants. That, that goes back. In uh, uh, through all administrations, or at least many administrations, the uh, um, uh, Bush Sr., Reagan, Nixon, Lyndon Johnson, Harry Truman, uh, that's normal. And, and as I see it, the, the project should be to define the right system of accountability between the Federal Reserve and its creator, which is the Congress, but not to make it subservient to the executive. Parenthetically, we know that central banks are always subservient to the executive in time of war, because in time of war, everything else gets subordinated to winning the war, and one of the things you have to do to win the war is inflate the currency. Um, by, by central bank financing of the debt. That, uh, that's just a fact. But outside of war, you don't want, in my opinion, the central bank subservient to the executive, but you do want it accountable to the legislature. And, and my metaphor in this is that the Congress is the board of directors. It's not supposed to be managing the central bank, but it's, the, it's like the board, directors of a company governing the management uh, of the central bank. Now, we certainly have not achieved that 
uh, but I think I think we should achieve it, and it and it is achievable. All right. Well, thank you. Oh, we do have one question here. Oh yeah, they are, and uh, and they're going to. Um, they held held them near. They held them near zero in nominal terms, but more importantly, in real terms, their inflation-adjusted terms, they were negative for eight years, the better part of eight years, which is extremely distortive to David's point, and has set off uh, asset price inflations in equities and bonds and. Uh, houses and commercial real estate and collectibles. Uh, and when, uh, it, as I think will be the case now, not only short-term rates, but long-term rates will rise, as Alan, Alan Greenspan uh, gave a talk at AEI a few months ago, which I had the uh, honor to chair. We, we told him, well, you gave this irrational exuberant speech in 1996 at AEI. How would you like to, you want to come back and give another irrational exuberant speech in 2018, and he did, uh, and uh, he wound up by saying, if long-term rates go up, most other asset prices go down, and that's right. I think that's what we're, we're looking at, and the, the question, of, question of whenever the next panic comes, as I said before, that's when... The lenders realize that their forecasts were wrong, their expectations were wrong, the prices of things are going down more than they thought, the prices of things they lent against are going down, and, and so they stop lending. I'll just end on this one uh, little thought. Uh, when I talk to audiences of, of uh, housing lenders, of mortgage lenders, I, I have a two-question routine. The first question is, what's the collateral for a mortgage loan? And they say, the house. And I say, nope, it's the price of the house. That's the collateral. And the second question is the one you've already heard. How much can a price change? And the answer is more than the lender thinks in the good times. That's why the loans that become bad loans are made in the good times. Thank you so much. For being Thank you all. You're today. so nice to come and hear about this. And we will have a reception uh, shortly following. Thank you. Thank you.